0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. Hi. Theory.
1: Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Bhashu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Welcome to today's episode, which is very intriguingly titled, Outdated Futures. And this term has been coined by our guest today, Manish Malwani. Manish is an old friend of mine, and I'm going to ask him to introduce
0: himself. Hey, thanks so much for having me. My name is Manish Malwani. I am a writer of science fiction, fantasy and horror, originally from Singapore, person of South Asian descent. I'm very interested in I think the intersection of really empire and science fiction, empire and genre. And yeah, I'm really excited to be here. And also just wanna add that you and I know each other from we met at a postcolonial studies graduate class.
1: So I'm just gonna jump right ahead and ask you my very first question. What the heck are outdated futures
0: outdated futures when i see or when i hear certain prominent i guess technology moguls talking about you know visions of mining the dark side of the moon or colonizing mars and and i see these these ideas just get a lot of get a lot of excitement and enthusiasm I, i i hear Friends of mine, childhood friends talking about like, oh, you know, I'm over the earth. It's all about Mars now. I I think, (laughs) I I think these ideas have a lot of, a lot of currency because we're at such a hopeless moment, right? In history. And, and so any kind of, of futurism or any kind of futuristic optimism, I think carries a lot of weight and i call these outdated futures because they are like you know ex- they were once exciting science fictional ideas they're ideas that i for much of my life was extremely excited by and i think they are completely outdated now
1: when were they invoked or like what stage of scientific development or what stage of real as opposed to fictional scientific development, were they associated with when they were in vogue, would you say?
0: A lot of these ideas were in vogue in sort of the golden age of science fiction. So from like the 1930s to like the 1960s. And, you know, they were kind of a, this, this era of swaggering tales of space colonization and technological advance, really kind of in lockstep with the, you know, the atomic age. And I'd say now these futures are outdated and they're outdated for for three big reasons. So firstly, I think they miss th- these, these desires to like go to the moon again, mine the moon, colonize Mars, spread human life to other planets. I think firstly, they miss the point of science fiction. Science fiction is often about the future, but it's not actually about the future. It's not about predicting the future or, or creating prophecy science fiction is always responding to the present moment secondly even if the point of science fiction was to predict the future that future is like i said now badly outdated our present reality is climate change it's an emergency on planet earth it's it's this disrupt critical disruption of the biosphere that literally gave allowed us to evolve right. that's our that's our present and as a result it forecloses Many, many futures and it opens the door to many worse futures, but also maybe some better futures too. And finally, even if, even if that future wasn't badly outdated, it was always a bad future because science fiction has, as part of its DNA, this imperial heritage that we need to be constantly grappling with. And it manifests in these ideas because, well, <clears throat> imperialism was always about extraction and exploitation, and it's not something we should be spreading beyond Earth's atmosphere. And I just I just want to, like, throw a quote into the mix. And this is a quote from Cecil Rhodes. The world is nearly all parceled out, and what there is left of it is being divided up, conquered, and colonized. I would annex the planets if I could. And I think that this, <laughs> this... You know, this desire to colonize the solar system and other worlds really is deeply rooted in the gaze of empire.
1: The techno-mogul who we haven't named, which our listeners can guess who he is. So far as you know, does he read science fiction and if he does what kind of science fiction do you think he's inspired
0: by so he's on the record as loving science fiction he is a big fan of ian m banks uh ian m banks's culture novels which are a series of i guess you could call them far future space opera set in a in a utopian interstellar post-scarcity society and he he loves it so much that the the rockets and landers in his space company are named after (laughs) the sentient starships in these books. And, you know, the, the, the starships have great names. It's like a lot of them are just puns on the fact that the names like, you know, have a suitable lack of gravitas or sorry, lack of suitable gravitas for like starship names. And so a lot of these, you know, a lot of the SpaceX rockets and landers have these weird names that come straight from the culture novel. But he seems to have missed the point of those books because Ian M. Banks was a socialist. He wrote novels set in, this, you know, utopian post-scarcity society that frankly looks like it would be a blast to live in. It's it's a world where, you know, people the world is run by or society is run by these sentient, godlike, intelligent AIs. Mm-hmm. And humans basically just get to do whatever they want. You know, they collect graduate degrees, they put their minds into new bodies, they go and and just have parties on different worlds. And it seems like it would be a blast to live in. And I, I feel like the point of those novels is that written, I think, under the shadow of like increasing austerity in the United Kingdom, the, the point of those novels is that life would be worth living in such a society, but there would also be new challenges and conflicts. And it seems like the lesson that has been taken from those books is that it would be cool for him to build spaceships and give the spaceships weird names. And I feel like that... Right. Just has completely missed the point of
1: it's. It's astounding, like given the grand scale of his enterprise, the the inspiration that he has taken from these novels is so reductive. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's strange. And just as an aside, that that phrase "collect graduate degrees" hit very hard. Uh, I did, me too. Yeah, <laughs> but we are going to move on. And I'm going to ask you my next question, which is
0: how do we use outdated futures? You know, it's sort of like you can't solve a problem that you have in your life until you admit there's a problem. And I think similarly, we should use it as a kind of diagnostic tool. You know, if we say, wow, people, people want to go to Mars, a planet that, is so hostile to human life that like you know you're probably going to die of radiation sickness people want to go to mars people people want to invest in cryptocurrencies i think these are all symptoms that the present is just really not working for us and i i think maybe even to get on a a level of dissecting the trajectory of the genre of science fiction and fantasy the mainstream appeal of ideas of futures that were written In the 1950s really has to do with the fact that plotting a future from today is really difficult and really scary i think we've maybe trapped ourselves in a kind of imaginative dead end right and i mean we we really see this around the world with the response to COVID 19. you know here in in new york city like restaurants are going out of business all the time and and there's no real impetus to be like wow we should bail out small businesses we should bail out the the workers who work there, there, there's no imaginative capacity among the people who currently run the world for this. And, you know, if we can't solve that, how are we going to solve climate change? Right. And also like being
1: kind of suffused by, suffused with and like taking for granted that, you know, capitalism is the form of life that we have. I think that's also sort of marries us to the idea of a reset as opposed to a repair. And, you know, we throw away things that begin to show, you know, like signs of not working and that, you know, that begins from our
0: smartphone and ends with the planet, I guess. It's easier for us to imagine capitalism uh, in its present neoliberal form spreading to the entire solar system than it is for us to imagine like a sustainable economic model that could allow human life on earth to flourish and that to me is insane the science fiction
1: that you're talking about is it mainly science fiction that is being written in america or are you bringing in other
0: i think it's america american science fiction but with a pretty substantial british heritage so a lot of these magazines um, astounding magazine edited by John W. Campbell being a pretty influential one uh, that defined the golden Age of science fiction right. you know headquartered in America but the genre has a lot of strands that come from from England uh, for example, a lot of these colonial adventure stories, have DNA that found their way into science fiction. Writers like H.G. Wells, who very much was like responding to the anxieties of empire. Also, you know, quintessential to the DNA of science fiction. Uh, I do, I do want to say though, I think I, I, I want to be really clear that even though, uh, the, these outdated futures that still have a lot of sway over the mainstream imaginary come from, you know, mid century science fiction. If you look at science fiction and fantasy today, it is an incredibly dynamic and fast-moving and diverse field that I think there's writers from all sorts of backgrounds with all sorts of interests that are really just pushing the genre in directions that mm. the people in the 1950s could not have dreamed of. And I I wish that I just I wish that more people would get excited about those ideas than these old stale futures
1: yeah that's that's a great point for me to ask you my last question for the day which is how will outdated futures save the world
0: or or not i guess outdated futures will not save the world futures like (laughs) colonizing mars or mining the moon and the asteroid belt Uh, if we actually do these things we won't save the world and there's a good chance that we will actually continue to destroy the conditions for human life of right. this world. Yeah. Annexing the stars like Cecil Rhodes wanted to do may have been an exciting idea. I get it, I, I wanna be on a starship too, but just Google what Cecil Rhodes actually did and you'll see the downsides of his ideology. <laughs> yeah. So I think outdated futures are most useful as a diagnostic. They're a warning sign that we've reached an imaginative dead end and like any problem, once you know there's a problem, then we can begin fixing it. So if we let go of the swaggering colonial sci-fi ideas from the genres early years and embrace what people are working on now, what science fiction writers are actually working on now, we can free up space for something new. So just a couple examples, Kim Stanley Robinson's explorations of various during and post-climate change futures. Uh, his new book, The Ministry of the Future, is about that. Malka Older's Sentinel Cycle, which explores entirely new forms of global governance, technology-enabled micro-democracy, and explores like the possibilities and problems of that. Chen Chufan's The Tide*, which is about the detritus and horror of our vastly unequal global economy i think the only ways out of a dead end are unconventional ones right if you've driven into a dead end you can you can turn the car around but if you've driven to a dead end and you're out of gas like we literally are as a civilization you have to get out and walk and you know walking may sound boring but it's interesting too you can jump a fence you can see the sights you can climb up on things you can do all sorts of stuff that you can't do in a car. So I hope that realizing that these futures are outdated will help us imagine better ones. You know, focusing on imagining futures on Earth that we can be more excited about than uh, killing our planet or going to a yeah. planet that will kill us, which is what Mars is.
1: A lot of this work, a lot of this radical reimagining, is coming out of the global south, mm-hmm. and uh, science fiction. That is, yeah, science fiction. That is. Responding to actual historical colonialism, which it has gone through. If I can, you know, add so uh, recently there has been conversation about how to transform the narrative around climate change from one of doom and gloom and to one of hope and excitement, so that I guess it helps with collective action and policy to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you have found, you know, these kind Of emotional registers of hope and excitement in the science fiction that you are seeing coming out
0: right now and especially coming out of the global south, I think there's a lot of a lot of so- solar punk coming out of the global south that generally tries to imagine. I think you'll have to define that term for me, Manish. <laughs> what is solar punk? It's essentially a movement that you know it, it, it tries to imagine green futures at scale, right? And I think there's a lot of exciting aesthetic possibilities in in solar punk. I also I personally have been getting really excited by so that there's this thing with talking about building a future that is adapted to climate change I think when you talk to a lot of people in America there's this there's this urge to kind of go back to the land there's this urge to like set up you know intentional living communes and basically have these little post-capitalist enclaves and right. While I understand that urge i I feel like it it doesn't work in the global south you know like it it doesn't work in in parts of the world that have been like interdependent on interconnected trade for millennia, and I think it also sets up a a kind of moral hazard where people can can ensconce themselves from the problem while still being the beneficiary of like a you know imperialist system essentially so i I'm really excited in thinking about like what does a return to the era of, Indian, of the Indian Ocean trade in, you know, a post-oil age look like? What, is it, what does it look like right. if we start thinking about, okay, let's, let's, bring, let's create a new age of sale and rethink our, rethink our global economy along those lines? What if we start, you know, thinking about what would workers' collectives that own essentially shipping companies collectively, what would right. that look like? And I think, you know, then then you start to think about, like, how can we move past even concepts like the nation state, which are, frankly, you know, 600 years old at this point. It's an outdated concept, too. Okay. I think that is a rather hopeful, albeit
1: very, very ambitious note uh, on which I think (laughs) we can end on. Thank
0: you so much, Manish, for coming to the show and talking to me about outdated futures. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Your podcast is amazing. And thank you for
1: listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonic Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music and Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.